Hello and welcome to Slate Money Goes to the Movies. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Elizabeth Spires of New York Times from Slate. Hello. Emily Peck of Axios. Hello, hello. And we are going to be talking about Dumb Money, the movie all about the meme stock craze of early 2021, and specifically the GameStop meme stock craze. And (laughs) we have a great guest to talk about this. Joe, I don't want to say that you're dumb. So why don't you introduce yourself in a glorious way? Joe Nacero, welcome. Thank you, Felix. Uh, I think the most important thing to say about me is that I'm the author of a brilliant new book called The Big Fail about COVID. This is, I'm pretty sure, the first movie I've ever seen and quite possibly the last movie I'll ever see where COVID is a central character in the movie. Lots of people are wearing masks. It's sort of omnipresent throughout the movie. And the movie, let's just be clear about this, is basically a comedy. Yes. Um, And so... You have written the book, I, I'm i going to just come out and say, is not a comic book. It's not, ha-ha, wasn't COVID funny. But this is a comic movie about a pretty, pretty tragic time. Yes, but it's also about a fun, it's a fun story that took place within that sad time. In part because people, all these people had nothing else to do but look at their computers all day. I mean, let's face it. We are going to talk about Dumb Money, the movie all about GameStop and meme stocks and who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. That's coming up on Slate Money Goes to the Movies. So this was the what Matt Levine famously called the boredom hypothesis, um, the boredom markets hypothesis, which is when you're stuck in front of your computer all day in the winter of 2021, and it's too cold to go outside and you can't meet anyone anyway, because you're, you haven't been vaxxed yet and all the rest of it. um, The only thing you have left to do is take your stimulus check and gamble it on on meme stocks, um, which does have a certain amount of explanatory power. But I'm just going to come out and say that like, that whole thesis basically doesn't make it into the movie at all. No, the movie is more, they're trying to make it into, they tried to make GameStop and what happened into like a David and Goliath story um, where the common, the dumb money, the common investors, the rabbles, the rabble, the rabble? Um, the rebel rabble. <clears throat> the rebel rabbles. They wanted to stick it to the man, to stick it to Seth Rogen's character, Gabe Plotkin, and all those guys and drive the stock to the moon so that the bad guys, the rich hedge funders, you know, would lose all their money. Um, and the, yeah, and COVID, though omnipresent in the film, isn't, isn't used as an explanation, but it kind of sets the vibe for the film. And I found it more convincing as a COVID movie than as a movie about what happened with GameStop because it seemed a bit oversimplified and not funny. I really love this distinction. It's that, like, I, I do agree that as a, as an explanation or narrative of the GameStop phenomenon, um, a lot of stuff was missing, and this became this weird sort of black hat, white hat, white hat you know, good guys versus bad guys story, which, um, you know, failed to include a lot of important context. Tell me tell me about the the sort of parallel reading though of this movie as a COVID movie and what you and how you thought about that. And I really want to ask Joe about that because he's just written an entire book about 
COVID. Joe, go oh, ahead. Oh, I thought he was talking to you. Um, oh, no. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I didn't take it as a COVID movie. I don't know. I mean, I think of Pete Davidson, you know, being a DoorDash guy, right, and eating all the food while he's get, dropping it off. And, and, uh, and you certainly don't see people in crowds and everybody's in their own home, including the rich people and so on. But to me, it's a revenge fantasy movie. Yes. That's what it is. And, yes. And the other thing about it is, I mean, this did really happen. Now, I happen to think, you know, it's, it's a stupid way to try to make money, but it did really happen. And if this little guys had been smart enough to sell the stock, they would have made a lot of money. But the problem is the reason they're little guys is because they had this loyalty and this faith. No big guy, no big smart hedge fund guy would ever hold on to a stock just because everybody else is holding on. They would, they, would, they would sell it the minute they could see themselves making some money on it. So I suspect, I strongly suspect that despite the pleasure I took in this movie and that I think a lot of people take because it's funny and it's smart and it's good, I suspect that 95% of the people who bought into GameStop lost money in the end. That's, that's a high number. And it is belied to a certain extent by the fact that GameStop to this day is trading well above its pre-pandemic levels, like well above what anyone might normally consider fair value, um, largely because it has kept some of that weird meme stock halo. And the story about GameStop, the narrative of GameStop from the early days of 2021 was, here is this doomed company, which is almost certainly gonna wind up running out of money, all of the hedge funds have realized that it's doomed. They're all short the stock. And so the Wall Street bet crowds from Reddit is going to engineer this massive short squeeze and force them to cover at ever higher prices. And that's the David and Goliath thing. But like, that's a strategy that works until it doesn't. And then eventually, it's going to go to zero. The, the interesting fact about GameStop, to me, is the fact that it never went to zero. It stayed high. It's continuing to muddle along somehow at a ludicrously high valuation. And on net, the people who were shorting GameStop before the Wall Street bets crowd got involved lost a lot of money because it's still above that level, which kind of means that mathematically speaking, the meme stock traders and the little guys on net, in aggregate, have to have made money, no? I doubt that. So who made the money? Well, wait, listen. As, as is often the case with, uh, with mutual funds, you know, a hot mutual fund, the people who buy low, when it's low are vastly outnumbered by the people who buy then when it hits 80 or or $100. And I strongly suspect that's what happened here. That, that as people gathered, that it's a $13 stock. I don't know how many times it's split. It was a $13 stock right now. How many people actually bought below 13 versus how many people bought when it was up around 80? That, and on the short selling side, yes, Plotkin went out of business. Um, but, you know, if you shorted it at 80, you're making a lot of money right now. Elizabeth, well, adjudicate. Adjudicate whether people lost or made money. And does it even matter? Because my theory in, in, in my book, I can, if Joe can plug his book, I can plug mine. My theory in my book is that the people playing this game of, of buying and selling um, options and GameStop and AMC and all of this kind of stuff, you know, 
on some level, weren't playing the same game as the hedge fund managers and the mutual fund investors and all of that kind of stuff. Like, it was fun if they made money because then they could post their screenshots to Wall Street bets and show how much they made, you know, on some trade. On the other hand, it was also fun if they lost money because they could also post those screenshots and that would get a whole bunch of upticks and uplegs. And, and like, if they lost money... It was a particularly painless form of losing money because it all felt like free money anyway with the stimulus. Well, I think, you know, another thing is that I just don't think that the retail investors who are the most active in GameStop are really indicative of retail investors generally. There there are a couple of things about the people who were really obsessed with that stock. And one was that they behaved the way a lot of people on, you know, Reddit and elsewhere behave when they think they have some kind of insidery edge. And it, it almost, you know, uh, snowballs into a conspiracy theory level interest. And, and I think that's part of what was happening with GameStop is uh, the Paul Dano character who plays a guy named um, Keith Gill, who whose uh, nom de plume was Roaring Kitty, whipped okay, all these deep yeah, fucking value, whipped all of these people into a frenzy. And, you know, the way he would talk about the stock would insinuate that there was there that there was things there that nobody else could see. And, you know, this is a feature of typical pump and dump sort of things. But um, it, it really sort of played to conspiracy culture on the Internet. And I think it was just much easier to ramp the stop, uh, stock up this way because that's just the dynamics that you have online around personalities like that. That's why the stock so, is still up. That's why it's at $13 and not at a dollar, because there are still true believers in GameStop. They still go to Wall Street bets and other places on Reddit and talk about um, this company, and they still believe in it. Like that, it's, a, it's basically come down to just another conspiracy theory. Well, I see. Okay, so the conspiracy theory is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but the conspiracy theory is not in the movie either. Right. There's no point at which we see his investment thesis laying out the idea that he sees something that everyone else doesn't beyond that. There's like a fun trade here with a short squeeze. Um, No, his theory in the the movie, at least they make it seem like this guy just really likes this company and thinks the stock is worth more than people think it's worth. Like it's a good it's a good company has potential, which to me, as a viewer of the movie, just the movie makes him seem dumb because mm-hmm. we all know that GameStop is not going anywhere as a company. Like we all see the writing on the wall. If you know anything about video games, people buy them from their consoles. They don't buy them at GameStop. If you've been to a GameStop, there's no one there. It just, I just had a hard time buying this guy as some like brilliant renegade hero with a, an incredible insight. Like his insight was meh. <laughs> and he wound up running a giant pump and dump scheme. That's what happened. You know what I mean? First of all, um, it was not a pump and dump scheme because there was no dumping. But second, we don't of know all, what he did. We don't know what he did, has done with his stock because he's disappeared. Right, but for the for the period in the movie. Um, which was co- and we did see he did post a bunch of um, screenshots of his um, positions like very regularly, almost daily during the fever, and no one has suggested that those were like doctored or false. Um, he he stayed long. He stayed aggressive. Um, Fine. He and, pumped, and we don't know if he dumped. Yeah, we pumped, and we don't know if he dumped. Okay. Um, but I think. I'm much more aligned with you, Emily, in terms of saying that he, like his screen name on 
Reddit was deep fucking value. He thought of himself as a fundamentals-based value investor. Yeah. I do not see what Elizabeth is talking about, which is the conspiracy theory type thing. Um, but Joe, you, you were following this as much as anyone else. The way I think about it is, whatever he thought about the stock, what caused people to kind of get in a frenzy over it was the ongoing anger at Wall Street over the 2008 crash. That I think that engendered a feeling of hatred for, for Wall Street that has never gone away and make people think, you know, we got screwed and nobody went to jail. Thought we lost our houses, blah, 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 blah. So wait, is this sudden, way, wait, wait, hang on. Can you just plug your other book? Because that's another great book. All the Devils Are Here by Joan O'Sara and Bethany McLean. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. It was about anger to, uh, from stemming from 08. And that is in the movie. Right. And the yes, <laughs> but the, I mean, that to me, the, it's like, let's bring down these bastards. Yes. Let's get them. Let's get the best. And when they discovered that there was a sh the, the, the short interest was so high and that and, and the short interest was mostly Wall Street and they actually had the chance to bring down a big guy, which they did. It was uh, deeply pleasurable. Was Gabe Plotkin and a big guy? That's. Unclear he had to a me. two billion dollar fund. That's pretty big. I've ne I'd never heard of him until this. Okay, I got to <laughs> tell you. So I've been at the SBF trial. The last I, I was at the FBI trial when he was being uh, cross examined and examined, and he threw the word billions around like it was pocket change. And it shows how jaded we've all become that a two billion dollar fund is like. Eh. I guess that's, that's all I got to <laughs> say about that. I mean, I mean, he had a big house. I guess I just never heard of him. And. It, he didn't. It, another thing was like, I know he was supposed to be the big bad in the movie, but Seth Rogen's character and Seth Rogen himself are so like funny and charming that to me he was just like a doofus. But he didn't come across as like a villain type. You know what I mean? Well, I felt like the the bad guys in the movie were really more Stevie Cohen and uh, yeah. Ken Griffin. Stevie Cohen's the one with the pig, right? The pet pig. Yes, and the Mets hat, yeah, the Mets hat, nice. don't forget that. That was nice. That was villainous, I suppose, but still wasn't villain villainous enough for but, me. But Ken Griffin, like, as played by Nick Hoffman, is just this, like, very affable, friendly kind yeah. of guy. I don't, I don't see him doing anything villainous in this movie. Which is funny because Griffin tried to sue before the movie came out because he was afraid yeah, that Offerman's there were, there portrayal of him was going to be... It wasn't really, I don't know, if he, he threatened to sue. He, he, he sent a couple of, like, nasty grams, but in the end... He, he wound up saying that he'd made his peace with the movie. In fact, he wound up saying that they changed the movie um, to address his concerns, which is false. But, you know, if, if it makes him feel better, he can believe that. I mean, the only thing, like, villainous adjacent that the rich guys did in this movie was that they had really big houses or, I guess, in, in Ken Griffin's case, right, a resort all to himself. Like, you know, there's all these scenes of them in empty spaces, empty kitchens, dining rooms, whatever, where it's just them being served by, like, four other people with masks. So that makes you think, like, they're bad people. The condescending way they treated the servants, that was sort of villainous. Right. But it's, I, it no. wasn't enough. It wasn't villainous enough for me. Like, I needed, like, the big short, you know? I needed to see more, more pain con inflicted. All right, I have a question for the three of you. Where did you watch the movie? I, I watched... I saw it in the theater. Which theater? In, in, in Brooklyn? I watched it in yeah. an AMC. And I have to say, watching the GameStop <laughs> movie 
in the other in the other meme stock <laughs> theater was a little. I, I guess it was a little, a little meta. meta. It was a little meta. <laughs> and, I watched and it how, in an empty theater. So, so it was pretty damn yeah, empty. I, I watched it. I, I watched the screening of it, which was quite full. Oh, um, oh that's good. And you're I think yes. I think like because I'm fancy. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think. It is definitely one of those movies where if you're in a full movie theater where people are all laughing at the jokes, that makes you enjoy it more than if you're in an empty movie theater and you're like, am I trying to learn something about contemporary finance here? Yeah. Probably. It's the kind of movie that I'm going to let my 13-year-old watch because he'll enjoy it. Now, tell me about that because that's interesting. Like, uh, assuming... That your 13-year-old is not, you know, the son of a noted financial... T- oh, wait, he is. Never mind. But like, <laughs> but for most 13-year-olds um, who have no idea what a stock is or what a stock market is, like, presumably this entire movie would be incomprehensible. That, that's not true at all. That is not true at all. They would, they would get the jokes. They would love Pete Davidson. They would remember... It would, it would remind them of COVID. Um, they would get... They would. They may not understand the intricacies of the the stock, but they would sort of get that it's the little guy against the big guy. They would love how much swearing there is. Even his <laughs> wife says "fuck" every second word. And it's just like the, the interchanges be, between the brothers. It's a perfect movie for a thirteen-year-old, and that that may not is be it? a compliment to the movie. I admit, but, but <laughs> you think, but it is. You think people want? I mean, I watching that movie gave me like COVID PTSD, seeing the people take down their masks to talk and then put it back up. And the boss keeps at the GameStop where one of the characters works, keeps telling him to put his mask back on and just like all the empty spaces and the, and the big scene where they're getting ready to testify before Congress. Like as a movie watcher, you're waiting for them to get into cars and go to Congress, but no, they're just like going into another room in their house. It just gave me like I was like, oh, God, that was a really terrible time. And I, I don't think I've seen it yet on film that much. And uh, I realized I don't know if I want to. Now we really need to hear from Elizabeth on this. Yes. Oh. <laughs> yeah, although I feel like uh, now all the CEOs who have to testify before Congress do it over Zoom or whatever because it makes them feel less vulnerable than if they're in the room surrounded by the people they're being interrogated mm-hmm. by. So in a way, I think it let them off the hook a little bit. I, I will say I think probably my favorite scene in the movie is when Gabe Plotkin's comms people keep on trying to downgrade yes. his Zoom background to make him look less rich. <laughs> yes, that's they, right. Those guys need to help Larry Summers a little bit, I think. You know what I mean? Yeah, don't don't zoom into Bloomberg TV from the beach, Larry. That's just not a good look. Come on. Blur the background. Something. After the break, we're going to talk about whether this is a COVID movie. Did you, any of you, enjoy watching that time period on screen? Or is it just me that was like, what? I didn't really, I thought of it as, it just, it, it put it at a specific place mm-hmm. in time, but I didn't really think that much about it in, in terms of being a COVID movie, or at least not to the extent that you did. I, I I, I'm with, I'm with Elizabeth on this. I, 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 I noted it, but it didn't bother me. Mm-hmm. I guess I just have the most scars. Maybe that, maybe that is because I spent COVID in the Hamptons. <laughs> <laughs> Emily, I want to hear your, um, your reading of this as a COVID movie because that actually does fascinate me. Well, first of all, it's a COVID movie because of 
of what Elizabeth said, the time and place in which it is situated and the, the vibes it evokes. And you do kind of feel like this is all happening because during COVID, it just felt like the wheels were off all normal behavior in different ways. Like you, you almost had like a license to behave a little bit differently because everything was a little bit off kilter. Like people, kids weren't in school as Joe's written about. Um, we were all at home instead of at the office. We're all wearing sweatpants all the time. It was a, it was a very surreal time. The perfect surreal time for like a nurse to not cash out a half a million dollars when she has it, you know, it's like, it's, it's like a dream state or something. That's what it felt like, like a dream state. Yeah. The theme that I spend a little bit of my book talking about is this idea of feverish. Mm-hmm. That it works on a very kind of like literal and metaphorical level. We were in this febrile state, right? The entire country felt as though we were living some kind of fever dream. None of it felt real. And yeah, we were all coming down with fevers and getting COVID, but also just we were in this weird state where a stock could go from $3 to $300 in the space of a few weeks. And people would glom onto that and be like, oh my God, I can get rich. This is a way for me to get rich. We moved into this kind of feverish get rich quick mindset that really explains a huge degree of the meme stock phenomenon. And there was definitely this feeling that like the rules didn't apply anymore. We were in this parallel universe where a whole bunch of things are possible that never used to be possible before. And that, um, I think, I I guess my question for you, Emily, as as the person who looks at this as a COVID movie, and I love that reading, is that something that comes across in the movie, or is like is is that kind of because the way the movie ends is basically saying these retail investors are a force who are here to stay; they're not going away anywhere; they're not going anywhere. And on the other hand, if you do look at it as a COVID movie, then like the the natural um, conclusion of that is to say that was a weird time and this happened and it will never happen again because we're not going to have another pandemic anytime soon. Yeah, I think it, it was a weird time and it could only happen in that time. Yes, there are some more retail investors now than there were then. And I think in, on Wall Street, maybe they're watching them a little more closely than before, like marginally so. Um, but that was a very distinct period. And I and yeah, it's. I think it is over now. And maybe I'm reading something into the movie that wasn't really intentional. It's just, it's just my reading of the situation at the time. And if you're portraying the situation at the time, it's like impossible not to think of that as the reason this all happened. Um, I mean, it does, and that's not to discount like the reasons Joe is putting forth the anger towards Wall Street and all that. But like people have been angry at Wall Street since 2010 and it took a pandemic to like unleash that anger and, and create a meme stock. You know what I mean? It needed that extra. Some of the speculation around what happened initially with GameStop is, or GameStop is that the people who were the most excited about it and the most angry at Wall Street were people of a certain age who had a lot of nostalgia mm-hmm. for GameStop because it was pivotal during their teenage years and that's how, you know, it ended up being that stock instead of anything else. So I don't think, you know, to Emily's point, there's been a lot of rage against Wall Street for a variety of reasons and for a long time. But this particular stock, I think, took off because the people who were 
hyping it really had you know some very specific nostalgia for the mm-hmm. store because they thought of it as you know the last bastion of uh, physical games. It is certainly true that the meme stocks, if you look at them as a group, GameStop, AMC, BlackBerry, Bed Bath and Beyond, Hertz, um, they're all very sort of consumer-facing companies that on some level are well-known and, and people just look at the brand and go like, I like that brand. And in the old-fashioned sort of Peter Lynch, buy what you know thing, they're like, I know this, I should buy it. Um, so the, there was there is that natural name recognition thing that they all have in common. Um, but that sits uneasily in my mind with what, Joe and Emily were talking about, which is the anger, right? Because I remember Occupy Wall Street very well. You know, I went down to um, Zuccotti Square and I saw people who were super angry at Wall Street. And the one thing I, you know, it's hard to generalize about that crowd, but the one thing I can basically say pretty cert- with great certainty about that crowd is that there were very few people there who were like, well, the best way to channel this anger is to make lots of money in the stock market right. on Wall Street, right? <laughs> that, that, that seems like a weird way to be like, you know, I'm going to destroy Wall Street by going all Wall Street on them. Like, you know, that's that seems just It's a bizarre. different kind of resentment, though. It's a different kind of resentment, though. I think the retail investors are angry that they believe that, you know, Wall Street guys, people like... Ken Griffin and Stevie Cohen have some insider edge that they don't have access to for reasons of, you know, unfair uh, information asymmetry. The people in Zuccotti Park are, are have a lot more, lot broader gripes against Wall Street and capitalism, you know, as yeah, a it's like system. reformists versus revolutionaries. In the early part of 2000, my boss at Fortune Magazine, John Huey sent me to my hometown, Providence, Rhode Island, to write a story about all the people who were diving into internet stocks and how that was going to change, how that was changing the way people invested and how nothing would ever be the same again. And that story came out in about March of 2000. Oh, you talked exact- it. Yes. <laughs> and um, my point is that one of the things I felt when I watched the movie, when I watched people getting excited about the GameStop and the, and the meme stocks, was how we how insane it was between about 1995 and 2000 with internet stocks. It was it was the same thing, That's only true. it was broader because there were more people involved, and it wasn't just uh, day traders. Although there was certainly plenty of that. I mean, I have these vivid memories of being in Northampton, Massachusetts, where I lived then and talking to my next door neighbor about Juniper Networks. It's like, right. seriously? So, you know, to me, this was a, 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 this was a kind of a narrow frenzy that fits in with all the frenzies that we've had over the years on Wall Street um, that you could find. In working on my book, I discovered there was a nursing home frenzy in the early 1970s. People were buying nursing home stocks like they would could never could never lose. It's just it's it's kind of a normal. It, 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 people lose their minds over stocks. It's normal. It happens. You learn. I hope Keith Gill made a lot of money, but I think a whole lot of other people who bought into GameStop wound up thinking, "Oh man, that was dumb." 
It probably was. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm not going to disagree with that. The people in 1999 and 2000 saying, like, the Internet's the next big thing and these companies are going to be really valuable, I mean, they kind of weren't wrong. Look at Amazon. Well, they were right about the internet being the next big thing, but they were wrong about like the globe.com being really bad. Right. A lot of the companies obviously well, I mean, went even Cisco bust. System. Cisco Systems has never come back to the same valuation it had in 2000. Okay. That's a huge company. We have some ads, but after this, we'll talk about Vlad Tenev and the real villain in this movie. So, you know, in the, in the wake of all the GameStop activity, there's there's been a lot of discussion about whether or not regulators have some obligation to step in or whether or not they should step in when you see this kind of collusive behavior between retail investors online. Uh, what's your take on that? Yeah, I, I don't, I, I've yet to hear anyone actually make that case with a, with a straight face. I've heard a lot of people putting it up as a straw man and saying, like, people think that regulators should step in when they see Reddit people joining hands. I mean, but what would like, the regulators do? What would name the one do? person they, who's name one person who's actually said that seriously. I, I've heard, I've seen that. I mean, it, you hear it, you hear it in Congress. You hear it in Congress. The liberals. I feel in like Congress. I feel like you know this is clearly the little guy. You know. Um, that's one thing that the movie was right about, right? Which is that in terms of where who who really where where the power lies, the fact is that Ken Griffin has more power than Keith Gill. That's just an empirical fact. And if you if you want to like crack down on people with power, you want to be cracking down on Ken Griffin. You don't want to be ca- cracking down on on Keith Gill. I've that's that's like the easy question to answer. The interesting question, I think, that was raised by the movie, and going back to the whole question of, like, who are the big villains in the movie, for me, the biggest villain in the movie, the, one, the person who really comes across the worst, is Vlad Tenev, the CEO of Robinhood. Right. Yeah. He, he is the person who really comes across as this guy who truly screwed the retail investors um, in a sort of... Uh, number one, first by his entire business model of taking payment for order flow from the likes of Ken Griffin, and then number two, by not having the liquidity to be able to put up the margin and therefore reducing yeah. the amount that people could trade and yada, yada, yada. And, like, and it's super fascinating to me that in this sort of David versus Goliath, you know, um, narrative, that the worst person of all is is not the mustache twirling hedge fund manager, but rather the person who's pretending to be on the side of the retail investor to the point at which he actually calls his company Robin Hood, you know, take from the rich to give to the poor. I love the scene where he says Robin Hood was inspired by Occupy Wall Street to give the power back <laughs> to the people. That was like the sharpest satire, I thought, in in the movie, just the, everything it, about it his was, portrayal. Yeah. yeah. The movie also makes a bad guy out of short sellers. And, um, I, you know, I've, Felix and I have both made this point many times in many columns. But, you know, the idea that you should stop short selling is as stupid as the idea that you should stop small investors from doing dumb things. It just, this is what makes a market work. Yeah. I mean, the GameStop guys, they needed the short sellers. They needed... You needed a yeah, without without right, the short sellers, right. there wouldn't have been an investment thesis. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. It's all a game. <laughs> the one thing that every single meme stock, every single one, 
had in, in common was a large short interest. That was like a necessary condition for getting that big ramp up in the share price. Mm-hmm. So, That's but right. there, where there haven't been much regulatory talk about what Elizabeth was saying, you know, banning the little guys from banding together, there has been some talk about banning short selling, right? I, I'm not making that up. I think we re- read it in the press. I feel like that that's a recurring thing. That yeah. Right. We can have that. Yeah, I feel like, no. correct me if I'm wrong, Joe, you wrote the, the, the history of the financial crisis, but was there a hot minute in the middle of the pandemic where people tried to ban short selling of banks? No, that was during the financial crisis. And in That's fact, right. there were there were temporary bans on short selling banks um, that the Treasury Department imposed. Hmm. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, eventually they went away. And then that, that just makes me realize that the other the, the movie I was thinking about comparing to GameStop or the movie I was comparing to GameStop was The Big Short, which is obviously yeah. about <laughs> a big short. It is about but um, where the where the short sellers are the heroes. They're the heroes. Exactly. Yeah. So. It doesn't matter. I mean, it doesn't. It, you can be and a hero fact, short seller. You could be a villain short seller. It's, you could. It's the it's the sh- it's the short selling hedge fund managers. Yeah. Who are the heroes yeah. of the big of the big short <laughs> and the villains of um, dumb money. money. And right. the truth is, look, they're they're running hedge funds. They're in it for the money. Like it's hard to make them a hero. But also, no, they as, as Joe says, they perform a very useful. Um, role in contemporary capitalism, you know, like vultures are good animals too. Yeah, they're like uh, as Jim as Jim Chanos would be the first to tell you. They yeah. spot the flaws in the Big Short. You know, they they spotted the problems. <laughs> with well, market. the people who who complain about shorts the loudest are people who are you know executives at companies that they don't want shorted. So it's it's sort of a self serving line of rhetoric to begin it, with. Like, that that always confuses me. And Joe, you've You've talked to these executives much more than I have. But I've always been of the opinion that CEOs should love it when there's large short interest in their stock because it provides a huge amount of, like, upward pressure on the stock price. Like, the bigger the short interest, the more, like, that those shorts are going to have to cover. They're going to have to cover by buying the stock. And the more, like, future buying there's going to have to be. And when someone like Elon Musk comes out and starts railing on short sellers and telling everyone how evil they are, and I'm like, really? Because, like, isn't it good for the share price when, you're, when there's a big short interest? I think it's a tell. I always think it's a tell. If a CEO is complaining like crazy about the shorts, that usually means there's some problem inside the company. Mm-hmm. I buy that. So... In terms of the movie as a whole, um, for anyone who is not a 13-year-old boy, Joe, is this a movie you would recommend? Absolutely. I, 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 it's just fun. It's just fun. It, it doesn't matter what you think about Wall Street or, or the little guy or dumb money or smart money or Pete Davidson. It's just fun. Do you think... And this is the uh, my, my main quibble with the movie, like especially the way it ends with that classic, you know, white on black writing, and they're saying, like, you know, the little guys have shown they're a force to be reckoned with, retail investors are an ever-increasing part of the market, you know, their power shouldn't be underestimated and is here to stay. Yeah, that's all bullshit. (laughs) That's all bullshit, but you can, like, like, but that's, you can, it's relatively easy to sort of, I guess what you're saying is it's relatively easy to separate that from 
the enjoyment of the movie. Any movie that tries to be based on real things is they make a, they make half that shit up anyway. We all know that. It just it's like par for the course. And so, you know, I just decided at a certain point early in the movie, I just made this decision. I don't care. I'm going to enjoy it. It's making me laugh. I love how much they swear. Um, it just, just did it for me. It appealed to the 13-year-old Joe. Yes, yes. I spend a lot of time with my 13-year-old. Earlier on in this series, we had Amanda Lang talking about the BlackBerry movie, and, and she couldn't get past the you know, factual inaccuracies. She, there was no way she was just going to lean back and say, I, I don't care if it's not realistic. I'm just going to sit back and enjoy the movie. That's how I felt about the Steve Jobs movie. Huh. Um, the Aaron Sorkin, Steve Jobs movie. It, it drove me out of my mind because it was so insanely inaccurate. <laughs> I don't know why I have a different standard for that than for dumb money, but I do. Elizabeth, how important do you think it is that this movie in particular and movies of this genre in general are accurate? I think it, it depends on the movie. Like with the Jobs movie, we already know so much about Steve Jobs. It's very distracting to see you know, narrative that deviates from it or from what we understand to be true. With Dumb Money, most of the audience, if they're aware of the GameStop story, it's, it's, it would be unusual, but they definitely, most people are not aware of how the GameStop run happened or how short selling works. So I don't think the average viewer would even register that there might be inaccuracies in the thing. What strikes me is that, you know, Hollywood always has a bias toward ending things with, you know, lessons learned even if nobody learned shit. And so the thing that maybe irritates me a little bit is, is the, the sort of fairy tale ending where it's the, the lessons are all splashed out on screen for everybody to read. And it's not clear that any of them are true. You see, this is, it's interesting you say that like most of the audience will not know about shorts and meme stocks and GameStop and Warren Kitty and all of that kind of stuff because I kind of get the feeling that the whole reason why the movie was greenlit in the first place, and certainly the reason why, you know, Ben Mesrich got the book deal to write about this, and why there was so much interest from publishers, and that there are many meme stock books, you know, um, was precisely because, like, it really was, I can tell you, as someone who was writing for Axios about this at the time, like, you know, there was a huge amount of demand out there for stories about this. There was a lot of interest in it, and it did feel like a big deal at the time that the broad public, that, that did make it through into the sort of broad public consciousness. I thought this was not that great of a movie. I, 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 well, first, I was distracted just in the way Joe was describing being distracted by the Steve Jobs movie and that I was like, is this really qu not quite how it happened? And is this really David Goliath? I mean, I just didn't have any, I didn't have a ton of sympathy, empathy for the little guys in the movie. I know I was supposed to because it's a hardworking nurse and it's a, you know, a put upon guy that works an hourly wage at the GameStop in the empty mall. And I was supposed to feel sympathy for them, but I felt like they were kind of stereotype caricatures kind of characters. And I, I guess they tried to make the Roaring Kitty Paul Dano guy um, sympathetic because they said his sister died, but like we don't even learn how she died. Or it, it just, it was just seemed like well, we got to make this guy a real into a real character. So here's what we'll do: we'll give him parents and a brother, and they'll all sit very close at a kitchen table, and that will signify that they don't have a lot of money because they have a small kitchen. I just, 
I didn't feel for those characters and I found the acting on the villain side to be more compelling. And at the end of the day, I just, I didn't really care about anyone in the movie and I didn't find it funny enough to balance that out. Was it funnier or less funny than The Big Short? I think less funny. As funny. Less funny. <laughs> As funny. Okay. <laughs> um, Elizabeth, do you think it was necessary to make this into a comedy just because no one wants to see like a serious drama about this kind of stuff and that the the way to get people to pay any attention at all to a story about like, you know, payment for order flow is by making it a comedy. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, with this story specifically, because the whole sequence of events is kind of ridiculous yeah. to start with. But also, I think there's a trend now of making uh, self-important business people um, seem more human and, you know, uh, less intimidating. I feel like BlackBerry worked that way, too. Um, so I, I, I'm a big fan of movies that skewer self-important uh you know, I liked that people. part of the movie. I just the yeah, I like the that part of the movie, the skewering of the rich guys and their empty houses and stuff. But like the the portrayal of the real people, the quote unquote little guys and retail investors, I I didn't find compelling. Well, I think the difficulty there is that you have to be sympathetic to people who are you know really just trying to get yeah. rich quick. So even <laughs> if one of, right. it, yes. one of the one of the women you, Elizabeth, is, is a do you nurse, really have yeah. to get. Do you really have to be sympathetic to people who are trying to get rich quick? Like this is no. like it's it's weird, right? Because <laughs> in the movies historically, the you know the whole sort of you can't cheat an honest guy thing. Like the people who are trying to get rich quick are are rarely sympathetic. Yes, that is that is it. That is it. They're not sympathetic at all. Like you're just like, what are you doing? Just sell. Just sell. Why are you hanging on? Was was Gatsby sympathetic? No, but it was a, he was a compelling character, right? That's true. And he they was. weren't compelling characters to me. Mm-hmm. And I, even in a comedy, you have to do that a little bit, I think. Or make them likable or something. Do something. I, I'm no fan of Vlad Tenev in particular, but the way that they really bought into this narrative of, like, he's evil because something, something payment for order flow is, again, like, massively oversimplistic and honestly payment for water flow is the there's no there there. like it's just not a scandal even though everyone keeps on trying to make it into one but the scene where they unplug their teslas and go off driving in their cars you know and they give each other those looks smug looks of like we are billionaires now (laughs) that was that's good stuff so i didn't hate the movie i don't mean to just be so mean to this movie so emily (laughs) give it give it a letter grade uh, I'm going to give it a C plus. Elizabeth? I would give it an A minus. I enjoyed it. Um, I will give it a solid B, I think. Like, I, I could I could definitely enjoy it. I laughed at some of the jokes. Um, I, I, I'm not sure it's going to necessarily stand the test of time. I don't think anyone's going to be watching this movie in 10 years' time, but we will see. Um, Joe? Uh, a minus. I would have given it an A, but I, I just feel like I'm, I'm intimidated by my colleagues. <laughs> you see, we've talked you down. You have. You absolutely have. You guys make too much sense. You talked me up. I came up. 
<laughs> you can, wait, you gave it a C plus and you were going to give it like a D? Maybe. Yeah. I came in really not liking it, but then through through our conversation, I recalled that I enjoyed moments in the film. And <laughs> I felt I felt I was being too harsh. <laughs> I think that's a good place to to wrap it up. Um I guess we would recommend this if you want to enjoy yourself and especially if you're a 13-year-old boy. So to all of the 13-year-old boy listeners of Slate Money, go out and watch it. And everyone else, make your own mind up and I'm sure it'll be out on streaming soon. Mostly, however, I just need to say very, very many thanks to Joe Nacero for coming on. It's been awesome having you. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. The Big Fail. The Big Fail is your book about covid and basically and um, it's it, you're indicting the trump administration and the u.s government for being terrible is that more or less it a little more than that but generally <laughs> go read the book to find out and we'll be back on saturday with another slate money <laughs>